2: What happened after was the police came, they asked me some questions.
3: And while I was doing that, I was living like I was making a million dollars a year making movies.
4: I was really drunk, (laughs) and I was in bed with my phone next to me, which is never a good idea.
3: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, to mark the end of 2021, we're gonna hear moments from some of the best interviews Debbie did in the past year.
5: Judy practiced on chicken thighs (laughs) before she practiced on my body.
6: It's a fun, harmless prank. I mean, we, we always then put the tables back together.
0: When I started Design Matters 17 years ago, I primarily interviewed designers and visual artists. But over the years, while still keeping up with designers and artists, I also interviewed playwrights, musicians, writers, actors, activists, and even the occasional scientist pretty much anyone living and designing a creative life. We did a lot of interviews in 2021, most of them remotely because of COVID. At the beginning of the pandemic, I was worried about creating the same intimacy I had in the studio with my guests on Zoom. Initially, I was really worried But in the nearly two years we've been recording the podcast this way, I'm just happy we can still make the show despite the occasional technological snafus. I'm also happy to say that a few of this year's interviews even made it into my upcoming book about the podcast, Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People. The book will be released to the world in 2022. So now, without further ado... Here are excerpts of some of our favorite episodes of 2021. First up, writer Renda Girard. She writes fiction, but her latest book is a memoir called Love is an Ex-Country. It's a series of essays about joy, queerness, kink, race, love, and domestic violence. At one point in our conversation last March, I asked her to read one particular scene from her book.
2: When I was 16... I snuck out of the Connecticut basement to see a boy I was dating, a 17-year-old aspiring DJ. He and his friends picked me up from the dead end of our street. They took me to clubs, we ate at a diner, and then we went to a river. He and I kissed and touched each other for hours. When he dropped me off at home, all the lights in the house were on, even though it was dawn. We knew I'd been caught. He offered to let me stay the night at his house, He said his mother would be upset, but that she would understand. He said he was worried about me going in. To this day, I don't know why I didn't go with him, why I didn't choose snuggling next to someone who cared for me over punishment. I had never slept next to anyone I was attracted to before. I said no, and I kissed him goodnight. I snuck back in through the basement, as usual, took off my clothes and put on the nightie I'd left down there, behind the sofa bed. The sounds of my father's and mother's feet thundering down the stairs. And then it began like rain lashing at a window. Like a flood, like a doll cut up into five distinct pieces legs, arms, head. Like a cardboard box with a sword through it. Like a fist. Like a magnifying glass over something in large print. Like a clap. My body covered in red marks. My father slapped me, pulled my hair, punched my arms, which I hid my face behind. I was on my period. I bled and bled. My mother did nothing, always did nothing. I said, I didn't do anything wrong. His one hand held both my small hands and his other hand knocked me against the side of my face, like a heavy bookshelf falling on my cheek. I ran upstairs. I wanted to emerge from underground. He ran after me. I ran out. I ran in a circle around our house. He ran in a circle around our house. No one called the police. Our neighbors on all sides were white. I was screaming. Not a single neighbor tried to help. My face was red and my tears covered my face. My father commanded me to go back inside. I don't know why I did. We were back in the basement. He was kicking me. He was on top of me. He was slapping me. Afterward, he and my mother sat on the cheap corner love seat and explained to me what life was that there were rules, that I was a whore. They left calmly, now that all my father's energy had flashed out of him like fire, had burned me. I waited a few minutes, maybe 20, then I ran. I opened the basement door to the backyard and ran up the concrete stairs, down the street. I was in my ninety. I could have changed into my clothes, laced my shoes on, but I didn't want to change anything, didn't want to alter in any way the scene of the crime which was my body. I ran down another street all the way to the bottom to a payphone I used to use to call my friends. The payphone was dead. I ran across the street to the hotel where my parents let guests stay when there was no room at our house, the fancy hotel. I ran to the front desk. I asked the woman there to call the police. She appeared inconvenienced. She called the police and said that a guest had been assaulted. I corrected her and said I was not a guest. I corrected her and said, I ran to the closest place where I knew people would have to help me. It's just an extraordinary, extraordinary
0: piece of writing. It's so vivid. It's so intense. What, what happened after that? Thank you.
2: What happened after was the police came. They asked me some questions, but there was definitely racist undertones, you know, like, oh your dad's arab this is not going to be good for him and you know i knew that in that uh maybe not city but in that town people were beating women you know constantly i mean there were there are also stories of murders that took place um in connecticut in in that in that particular town where women were were murdered um but they just happened to have been murdered by white men so there was this Really, so weird. they were out partying, I yeah. <laughs> this this weird you know thing where uh I wanted to protect my family, but I also really didn't want my dad to hit me again, and it worked. I mean, he never hit me again after that because I think he knew that if I called the police again, he would go to jail. You did have to go to court, he had to go to court, yeah, he did have to go to go to court, and it took me. Until after to realize that I actually wasn't on trial; that he was the one that he had to go, that had to go to court. But I was a minor, so I was with with my family. I remember the social worker basically slut shamed me and told me, you know, well, you know, what what your dad did might have been wrong, but you really don't want to be running around with boys um, late at night. There was an assault on all sides. I felt I feel like women and people in this country who don't have. They just don't have protection. There's no real safety.
0: And that was Renda Girard. She was talking about her 2021 memoir, Love is an X-Country. Next up, actor and writer Ethan Hawke. When I spoke with him in March, he had just published his latest novel, A Bright Ray of Darkness. And his 2020 Showtime series about John Brown, The Good Lord Bird, had been getting rave reviews. At one point in our conversation, I asked him about how his friend, the late great actor Philip Seymour Hoffman, made him realize he needed to work harder as an actor.
3: I watched uh, Nobody's Fool the other day, a Paul Newman movie Robert Benton directed, a uh, really wonderful film, and, and, and Philip Seymour Hoffman plays like this small town deputy or something. It's just kind of an idiot little part, but oh, he probably has 10 lines in, in the movie And I was friends with him back then. He worked so hard on that part. Who was that guy? What does he have in his pockets? How did he get the job? Why does he do this dumb thing? What's his thing? He was rigorous with his imagination. And, you know, I watched the movie. It's years later. And he's just so wonderful in it. And so when he started getting bigger parts, he applied the same rigor to every line he had. And I had kind of a, hey, you know, let's get through this scene. I'm really looking forward to that scene. We're going to shoot on Thursday attitude, you you know. And I started seeing the possibilities of there's a difference between the job of a leading man and the job of a character actor. And fascinatingly enough, the job of the character actor is extremely challenging because you have to facilitate the story. You've got a job to do, and that's your only part. Then you, you get laser focused about it. And then when you come back to a larger part, you see, oh, smaller stitches in the fabric. You know, you see how to sew it tighter. You see how to help your seam partner. And that's really the change for me.
0: Despite the lesson you learned from Philip Seymour Hoffman about working harder, you've also come to recognize that every time you tried to sell out you fell on your ass, your words, not mine.
3: <laughs> I like these quotes you're finding. I, I suspect that you're talking
0: about your first foray into television, which I want to talk about briefly before going into Good Lord Bird, the Fox show Exit Strategy. What happened with that show?
3: That was my midlife crisis. You know, that was like, I turned 40 and uh, I felt like I had to quit being an artist and, and get a real job and hate it like everyone else.
0: Why? Was it because of having so many children? Was it, I mean... Uh,
3: My wife was pregnant with my fourth kid and um, the economy had just dropped out in 2008. And I'd spent a a lot of the previous years falling back in love with the theater. You know, that thing you asked me about, Phil, and smaller parts, you know, I got really interested in that and I started doing smaller parts and some big Broadway, you know, I did the Bridge Project, which we took Chekhov and Shakespeare all over the world. I did Coast of Utopia which ran for a year. It's a nine hour play about Russian radicals and Hurly Burly. I'd done for almost a year and they're all big ensemble pieces. I mean, some of those parts are big. Some of them were small. And, and while I was doing that, I was living like I was making a million dollars a year making movies and I was having a lot of children. And, you know, I, you asked me earlier, you know, when I, when I was a kid, I, I was very, very fortunate, you know, dead poet society. I had this m- money. I just, I got to do what I wanted to do. And all of a sudden, I couldn't do what I wanted to do. I wasn't getting cast. Younger actors were getting more parts. And you start kind of seeing the world. And I just panicked. You know, and I love Antoine Fuqua. And we had this idea, well, maybe we we can make a great cop show. You know, what if we did? Well, and I started bending my mind to, well, if Antoine would do it, maybe we could make this badass cop show and sneak one through. And I don't mean to knock that show or whatever, but it just... They didn't really let Antoine do what he wanted to do. The show never turned into the show that we had imagined it would be. And thank God it didn't happen. You said that it
0: ultimately resulted in your rebooting and revitalizing the next 10 years of your life.
3: How? I I just started doing things I care. I just, you know, I have an amazing wife, and she's an amazing partner. And she's not a materialist. She's like, don't do that. What are we making the money for? What like she sees very clearly the kind of capitalist design that this country gets motivated on the accumulation of wealth, the accumulation of possessions. That's how we define success. And we all just kind of get on this treadmill and hate ourselves. If we have to get off it and feel like we failed, if we don't have the school that we want or the house that we want. And she just wasn't buying into it. And she's like, let's start making decisions based on love. Like let's, let's tap. That's what you need to do. And I started doing things I cared about. And then it's and then my career started going well again. You know, it's mysterious how that happens.
0: Ethan Hawke. His latest novel is A Bright Ray of Darkness. In April, I spoke with the great nonfiction writer Susan Orlean. We talked about how she became a writer for The New Yorker and about her books, including The Orchid Thief and The Library Book but I couldn't let her go without talking about a hilariously epic tweet storm from the summer of 2020, which got a lot of attention.
4: You know, this was one of the strangest, funniest, most unexpected and unexpectable experiences of my life. Um, I was really drunk, (laughs) and I was in bed, with my phone next to me, which is never a good idea. And began, and actually someone, uh, I'm very anal about typos. I I just hate having typos and misspelling. So just writing this as I did, it was in the dark. And I was not correcting my typos and I made lots and lots of mistakes because I was sort of doing it blind. And then I fell asleep. So, I mean, there was a point where my husband came in and said that someone had gotten in touch with him and asked if my Twitter feed had been hacked. (laughs) And I was, for some reason, I was really irate. I thought, well, that's outrageous. No, my Twitter feed hasn't been hacked. And then I sort of shooed him away and said, leave me alone. You know, I'm just, I'm drunk and I want to be by myself in in bed. And the only thing that I was embarrassed about was wondering if my neighbors, who were the owners of this little foal, if they could tell how drunk I was. And, I mean, it hit me like a sledgehammer. I was smashed. It came over me very quickly. It was very hot out and we were sitting out in the sun, drinking, and they kept pouring more and more and more wine. And when I stood up, I almost fell over. And I thought, oh, geez, this is embarrassing. But uh, let's just assume they didn't notice. So I went to sleep blissfully ignorant. When I opened Twitter, which I do early on, I, I really almost fainted. And then I had a bunch of, you know, requests from different publications from a newspaper in Australia from this from that and I thought what is going on and then somebody said to me were you performing and I said oh my god I wish I could perform that well I mean no I'm not performing I mean I wouldn't I could never have done a drunk tweet as well as I did it drunk I think that's why people enjoyed
0: it people knew you were drunk
4: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I. it was funny because I thought also how cynical I would never do something like that. And and this is somewhat embarrassing, though they were very good natured about it. My neighbors, the ones who had had us over for drinks, emailed and said, sounds like you had a fun night. And these are people I would never have thought would have been on Twitter because my first thought was, well, at least they won't know that. I was so drunk and they'll never see the Twitter feed because they're not, they're not the kind of people who are on Twitter. And immediately in the morning, it was like, sounds like you sure had fun. You want to come over again tonight for more drinks? And I thought, oh my God. And then our next door neighbors who we had never met because they just bought the house somehow, um, I guess they, they messaged me on Twitter saying, um, hi, we live next door. Would love to meet. And I thought, (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) I mean that it was, it was actually really funny. I will say that I never felt embarrassed. I, I think I felt like, look, we're all at the end of our ropes. Everybody's drinking too much. I, didn't say anything I'm embarrassed of having said. I mean, it was mostly me ranting about my cat. And, you know, this is one of the weird things about the modern world. I mean, broadcasting being drunk, I guess, is the first piece of this. But the way something like that spreads is so astonishing and so odd. And you know, I had one little flicker of thinking, oh my God, I'm a serious writer and are people going to now think I'm a flake? But this has happened in my career multiple times, like agreeing to let The Orchid Thief be made into adaptation. I had a moment of thinking, no, people are going to think I'm, it's going to ruin my career and I can't let them do this to my book. And then I had another moment of thinking, well, what the hell? And I I guess that feeling that it's all part of the package, it it sort of revealed me in a way that I'm not, I don't reveal myself so much, really, but it was also very authentic. (laughs) So I can't, I can't say I regret it. I find it still so much of the moment that... I just laugh when I think about, you know, the doldrums of summer and the pandemic and, you know, everything that we've all gone through and, and drinking at four in the afternoon. And, you know, the whole thing was just so much uh, the moment in time.
0: Susan Orlean, may other such tweet storms come our way. We are sure going to need them. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com designed for work.
1: You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack.
0: This past August, I spoke with photographer and artist Catherine Opie, who has made some of the most indelible images of our time. Her intimate portraits of queer communities in Los Angeles and San Francisco put her on the map in the 1990s, and her black-and-white urban landscapes of freeways and strip malls are beautiful and haunting. I asked her specifically about a famous self-portrait she did in 1993 called Self-Portrait, Cutting.
5: Well, at the time, it was something that I actually was, it was a photograph out of mourning. Uh, My first domestic relationship and the only one I had ever had before uh, being with my current uh, partner and wife, Julie Burley, was with a woman, Pam Gregg and i was utterly in love and we built a house and we got two puppies and we were living the domestic dream i imagined in my mind that it would go on for a long period of time that the two puppies would potentially turn into children and uh all of all of that which was still hard in 1993 to imagine you know yes. very difficult in yes. 1993 to imagine and then blood as a substance is the substance that was feared and you know one of the things that I did say in that quote that SM was never sexual wasn't actually completely true because Pam and I met in a leather context and ended up being lovers and i've had other lovers within the leather community in that context so there is a bit of sex you know kind of pleasure in terms of sexuality mixed into it in terms of my history of relationships but pam broke up with me and i was devastated and for a year i spent uh doodling on a pad and i would doodle these tick figure girls with the house with the sun coming out of the clouds as a sense of optimism right that i will find love again and then i decided to go ahead and make it a cutting and make it a portrait and i was in the process of making the other portraits at that time and that it was just a profound sense of loss and longing not just for me personally in losing my first domestic relationship but the notion of loss overall in terms of the AIDS epidemic and watching it decimate all of these couples and communities. So even though there's two stick figure girls with skirts, but it was, yeah, I wanted to make a very complicated universal piece that went beyond my own personal sadness of the loss of my domestic relationship. And that is what I came up with.
0: Can you talk about how the artist Judy Bamber carved the
5: illustration into your back. What was that like for her? I think she was really nervous. I mean, it's actually on videotape. We have both cuttings on, on documented on videotape. Uh, we don't have self-portrait nursing, but we have the cutting on my back end pervert documented. Self-portrait cutting happened in Los Angeles in my new living room in what we called Casa de Estrogen, which was predominantly a lesbian uh, apartment building in Koreatown on Catalina Street. And Sounds so there dreamy. was an amazing history there. Jenny Shimutsu lived above me, and it was just an incredible group of, of, of dykes and their motorcycles that all lived together in this apartment building. And then my good friends, Mike and Sky, who I had photographed, were there to support Judy. And my other good friend, who was the photographer, Connie Samaris, mm-hmm. took the dark slides out of the camera and operated the 4x5 camera because there wasn't a, you know, it's a self-portrait but it couldn't be done like on a tripod with a cable release because it was 4 by 5 so Judy practiced on chicken thighs (laughs) before she practiced on my body I hope there are photos documenting that too And, and what's amazing is Judy is one of the most precise painters ever I mean her work is unbelievable if you don't know her work look up her work and we're born on the same day in the same year so we both are share april 14th 1961 oh, wow. and she was one of my best friends and i wanted an apprehension in the cutting i wanted it to not be done by somebody like mike or sky who would have been able to do it perfectly i wanted the blood to kind of like almost like as if the surface of the skin was scratched but at moments like you know, the scalpel would actually make a mark that was more definitive. And it was never meant to be a permanent cutting. I guess, you know, it became obviously a pretty iconic portrait. And then in
0: 1994, you created Self-Portrait Pervert. Yes. This time, you're sitting in front of a black and gold brocade. Your hands are folded in your lap. You're facing the camera. Your head is completely covered in a black leather gimp mask. You're wearing leather chaps. And the word pervert is carved in bloody, kind of oozing, very ornate letters across your chest. And the body modifier, Raylin Galena, cut the word into your skin. And then two of your friends from a piercing shop lined your arms 46 times from the shoulder down to the wrist
5: with two-inch needles. Yeah, I think they were 12-gauge needles but i remember we wanted the gauge to be big enough that it would create like a appearance of body armor in a certain yes. way and that i wanted the cutting and the needles to be completely precise because i was thinking about holbein's kind of henry the 8th portrait in a certain way and I was thinking about what the word pervert meant in 1994 in my community, especially when there was a beginning of a divide within our own community. And this is very specific. It's not just for what pervert means from Jesse Helms holding up Maplethorpe photographs on the Senate floor, but it also came from... Uh, internal homophobia of our own community of, again, the sex workers, the, you know, people who practice S&M were also perverts, and that there are portions of the gay and lesbian community that are, quote, unquote, normal. And I didn't like the notion of normal. I've never liked the binaries of normal or abnormal. I'm more interested in the complexity of sexuality and desire. And so it was, um, yeah, it was that moment where in the same way my friend Stake tattooed Dyke on the back of her neck that I was going to have Raylan do this cutting. And that was done in San Francisco in a studio while I was making the portrait series. It was uh, attended by an enormous amount of my friends, including the incredible trans historian Susan Stryker was there and it was you know there were uh the needles were done first and then i sat in the chair and uh, rayland did the cutting and then we cre- then i put the hood on and we we made some without the hood and some with the hood but i really didn't want my face because i wanted the notion of visibility to be placed on language So what does the word pervert mean? How do we deal with language? You know, is this enough of a pervert for you? And it's also really beautiful. And then you actually have to deal with the beauty of it as well, because it's not dripping blood. It's not, it's done in such a way that it just looks like almost a red tattoo, but it is blood coming to the surface.
0: Catherine Opie. Much of our work has been collected in a book from Faden called Catherine Opie. Nick Offerman is famous for his comedy, but he's also a charming and funny author. I spoke with him in October, shortly after the publication of his New York Times bestselling book, Where the Deer and the Antelope Play, The Pastoral Observations of One Ignorant American Who Loves to Walk Outside. One of the things we talked about was how he became an actor.
6: What I determined from, you know, my first stage was the altar of the Catholic Church, where they never gave me any lines. And so I realized if I was going to get any response out of the crowd, I was going to have to learn how to use my eyebrows and my intense gaze. And it was there that that I began to understand deadpan. I did get to ring the bells uh, a couple times during the Mass, and so with my timing and depending on my uh, eye line, I could really make my friends laugh just with my demeanor. And eventually they had me start doing the gospel readings mm-hmm. in a position known as the lector. And so then it carried over where I found that if I had the right amount of gravitas and intense focus, the parents would be tricked into thinking that was sincerity and, and reverence, <laughs> while all my friends just thought it was the, the most hilarious, like Leslie Nielsen in airplane kind of delivery.
0: At, at that point in your life, what did you think you wanted to do professionally?
6: Well, you know, working in the arts in any way was not an available choice. I didn't have the wherewithal to understand that that's what I wanted to do. I, I could have said to you, well, I love to play music. I play the saxophone. And uh, and I loved to like perform, but I wasn't aware uh, that you could get a job in either of those fields. My upbringing was such a cultural vacuum that I didn't understand that people from my school could become a sax player or a, an actor. I, I was pretty confused. Um, I loved using tools and building things with my hands, but I again I. I didn't understand that that was a creative job. Like when I used to do it as a teenager, I've, I worked framing houses and I worked on a blacktop crew. And so those labor jobs didn't seem like something to aspire to. I had no idea that one day I would become a, a fine furniture builder or boat builder. I was a pretty successful mountebank. I, I could put on a show, I could sort of charm people into thinking. They should elect me to like student council president or things like that when when I knew secretly that I was just going to try and steal all the candy bars for me and my friends.
0: Well, I understand that when you attended the University of Illinois, you would dress up as a carpenter and go to the library to see how many tables you could take apart before somebody (laughs) stopped you. And I'm wondering, generally speaking, how many tables were you able to dismantle before being found out?
6: Uh, usually, I, I don't. Th- I think our record was probably three, <laughs> and I, I forgot about that. That I mean, that was uh, <laughs> that was before. You know, that was obviously before the internet. We needed to find something to do, and so me and my buddy would go. And it's it's pretty. It's a fun, harmless prank. I mean, we we always then put the tables back together. We you know we weren't monsters. I still feel like there were much more destructive ways we could have been spending our time.
0: Absolutely. I think that, that, you know, just to make sure that all the joists are tight is is good when you were putting them back together, I assume, right?
6: Uh, Sure. I mean, that's just good manners.
0: (laughs) Now, initially, you thought you would major in music, but everything changed for you when your then-born-again Christian girlfriend auditioned for the dance department and you drove her three hours to the audition And while waiting for her, you hung out in the hallway of the Performing Arts Building. Can you talk a little bit about what happened when you were there?
6: Yeah, I mean, it it was pretty astonishing. Uh, If you've ever been to the Lincoln Center in in New York... Many times, yeah. The theater and dance facility at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana was designed by the same architect as the Lincoln Center. So similarly... It's a city block with four theaters, one facing each street direction, all connected underground by levels of carpentry shops, costume shops, uh, massive hallways where you can you can build a a house set and then load it with forklifts, you know, into the massive backstage opera bay doors and stuff. So it's this incredible facility that I'm hanging out in the hallway while my, my girlfriend is auditioning. And I I can't remember what the inciting moment was, but I ran into these two acting students at the time named Jennifer McCarthy and David something. And, uh, oh, I can picture his face. He played Hyman and As You Like It. David Coronado. Wow. And I ran into them and, and magically... I don't know how we struck up a conversation. I think they must have said, Hey kid, why are you loitering (laughs) in this hallway? And I said, I'm waiting for my girlfriend, but somehow we got onto the subject of, I said, what, what are you doing here? And they said they were theater students. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, we're studying to become theater actors. And I said, what hang on what does that mean and they like you can get a job doing plays is that a thing i mean i had heard of london and i had heard of broadway but i i was in illinois and and they said yeah we when we graduate you know we hope to move to chicago where you can make a living performing in plays and i just i mean it was like somebody just invented electricity i Was so excited. I went home to my mom and dad and said, You can get paid to do plays in Chicago. That's what I want to do.
0: What was their response?
6: They, God bless them, they, I have always said, You know, I've had some crazy ideas in my life, but I always work really hard and do my best, no matter what cockamamie scheme I'm up to. And so they said, Look, we'll support you. Uh, if you can try to have something to fall back on or like you should, you know, try and have a way to make money, which ended up being using my, my carpentry skills, but they supported me and I, I couldn't believe it. I, I went and had to do my first audition of my life to get into the, the conservatory there at the university of Illinois. And they were short on, uh, strong young men to carry the talented people on and off stage. And so I was able to fill one of those slots in 1988.
0: Nick Offerman. His latest book is Where the Deer and the Antelope Play, The Pastoral Observations of One Ignorant American Who Loves to Walk Outside. Thanks for listening to this year-end special. There's lots to go back and listen to and much more to come in 2022. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. This is Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking to you again in 2022. Be safe out there.
3: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Master's and Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world.
6: The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.